Hey everybody, Michael Cohen here. Welcome back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe even a comment if you have some thoughts on the episode so far or what you might want to hear in future episodes. I check all the comments and the feedback on the Apple iTunes podcast app, so I appreciate you guys chiming in, and for those of you who have done so already, it really does mean a lot. I hope to hear from even more of you down the road. Today's episode, we're getting back to football a little bit. We've had a a little bit of a reprieve with a couple basketball episodes in a row, but now we're dipping back into the world of football, and and this was a conversation that I really enjoyed because I think that um, in terms of X's and O's and understanding the wide receiver position and how to be good at that position in this league, this was one of the more insightful episodes we've had because the guest, Keenan McCardell, longtime NFL receiver, two-time Pro Bowler, uh, two-time Super Bowl champion, now the wide receivers coach for the Jaguars. He was fantastic in terms of breaking down how you be successful in the National Football League, what it looks like on and off the field, the type of mentality that you have to have, and then what he's bringing to his own players now that he's a, a position coach in the National Football League himself. Keenan has a fascinating story. You know, this is a guy who did not come into the league with a ton of hype at all. In fact, he was a 12th round draft pick, 12th round draft pick in 1991, number 326 overall to the Washington Redskins. And by the time his career finishes, he has 10,000 receiving yards. He's number 34 in NFL history in total receiving yards. He finishes his career with 883 catches for 11,373 yards, 63 touchdowns. I mentioned he went to the Pro Bowl twice, once with the Jacksonville Jaguars in 1996 and again with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 2003. Two-time Super Bowl champion. The first one, he was not a contributor for the Redskins in his rookie season, but later he was a major contributor for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, caught two touchdowns in their massive blowout victory over the Oakland Raiders. Um, This is a guy, as I mentioned, 12th round pick, which means he was the 43rd wide receiver taken in that draft, and not a single guy drafted ahead of him finished with more receiving yards or more receiving touchdowns in his career. To sort of trace his path a little bit, again, because he has a really, really cool path through the league. I mentioned in 91 as a rookie, he comes into the league, doesn't play at all. He's injured, winds up on injured reserve, and the team that drafted him wins a Super Bowl and then cuts him after the season is over. So he signs with the Cleveland Browns, who at that time are coached by Bill Belichick, defensive coordinator Nick Saban. He's there from 92 to 95. 92, 93, and 94, he's a bit role player. He's essentially special teams for one of those years and then like the fourth or fifth or sixth wide receiver the rest of the time. And it's not until his fifth year in the league, in 95, that he gets his quote-unquote big break. And he busts out for 56 catches, 709 yards, and four touchdowns. And from that point, his career takes off. He becomes a a pretty sought-after free agent, signs with the Jacksonville Jaguars, This is when the Jaguars had just come into the league as an expansion franchise, and in a four-year span, they go 45-19 and under Tom Coughlin, make the playoffs four times in the late 90s, they make the AFC Championship game twice in the late 90s, and he has 
you know, some tremendously productive seasons opposite Jimmy Smith, another phenomenal wide receiver. The two of them were like, you know, a thousand yards or within a whisper of a thousand yards each every season. From there, as I mentioned, he goes on and signs with Tampa Bay, wins a Super Bowl in his first season with the Buccaneers. He's there for two years, then wraps up his career for the most part with the Chargers. He's there from 2004 to 2006. He does go and join the Redskins again very briefly in 2007, but as he'll tell you in the podcast, by that point, he was the uh, the old guy in the room and, and sort of took on kind of that, that hybrid coaching veteran role. So the last, you know, real major contributions on the field of his career were during that, that stretch in, in San Diego from 2004 to 2006. And then he decides to get into coaching, you know, like a lot of former players do. He breaks into the the coaching ranks as the wide receivers coach with the Washington Redskins on a staff that was led by, you know, multiple Super Bowl champion Mike Shanahan, but also had Kyle Shanahan and Sean McVay and Matt LaFleur, all future head coaches, now head coaches in the league. So he was on that prolific staff that has been uh, discussed and and sort of analyzed and broken down as kind of like the uh, you know, the the origin of a lot of the the common offensive schemes in the league. Then he dips into college for a couple of years and coaches wide receivers at the University of Maryland and then jumps back into the NFL to coach the Jaguars wide receivers, sort of a homecoming of sorts, uh, starting in 2017, and he's been there ever since. So this was a really, really cool conversation from an X's and O's nitty-gritty standpoint explaining what you need to do to be good and successful and and have a long career as a wide receiver. So uh, I think you guys will enjoy it. And without further ado, let's get to a conversation with Keenan McCardell. Well, Keenan, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. I know this is a, a time of the year when even though you guys aren't going through OTAs and, and your mini camps that you normally would, it's it's still a busy time working with your players at the position groups and, and within the offense trying to get better for you know what we hope is a, is a full and complete 2020 season in the fall so I got to ask you what do you think of zoom and virtual coaching and all of that stuff that's been going on so far it's very different uh it's fun because um, you kind of interact with the guys in a, in a little bit different way in more of a casual sense uh they're really relaxed they understand uh that they understand it's work but they also want to they always make make you know that hey coach i'm at home i'm relaxing now don't forget that it's still you know still have a it's still voluntary but you know for the most part for for my guys they are understanding that you know when you have a new um you have a new um offense going in you have to pay a little bit more attention to some of the final details because of uh you know of the new offense coming in and they got to learn it uh, pretty quickly. And, and it's, and it's, it's a different type of learn for some guys because a lot of times these guys need reps. Now you got to change your, your, your learning capacity to uh, the difference in learning to being more of a mental guy instead of a rep guy, which I think helps a player out immensely because the more that he can think about it and, 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 and continue to, uh, let it come across his brain uh, as a mental thing, it'll be a lot easier when he does go do the rep. Some people say it's the other way around, but I think it's better to be more mental thinker than a rep guy. Well, it's interesting that you put it that way because, you know, I've talked to guys that are rookies or 
um, you know, whether they're first-round picks or undrafted free agents, and, and they'll talk about how the first few practices uh, during OTAs, even if it's just a rookie minicamp, the speed that everything happens at is so much faster. And so I feel like if you do have that opportunity now where, you know, of course you'd like to be out on the field if you could, but if you can't, you really have to focus on, you know, knowing your alignment, knowing your assignment, knowing where you have to go, and so that when you get out on the field, it's not necessarily the double whammy of needing to learn the physical and the mental. So when you talk to these guys, I know that there's always a mental jump coming from the college game to the NFL, but are you able to to maybe spend a little bit more time um, explaining certain things at, at a pace where if you were mixing in the physical, you wouldn't be able to do it as quickly as you can right now? Uh, no doubt. That's, I mean, I think it's, it's, it will be a key to some of the uh, younger guys coming in playing fast playing faster than they would if they were trying to mix both at the same time, uh, doing it mentally for about two hours in the classroom and then going outside and doing it for another hour and a half out on the field and then mixing it mixing it in. I think now uh, if they you know, if they take it seriously, which I think most of these guys do take it seriously and will take it seriously, um, they will um, they will be able to play faster than what they they were expecting to play coming and making a jump. I think uh, the biggest thing for most most guys that they can get adjusted to the speed by probably about four or five about third or fourth game into the season. But mentally, the the mental pressure that keeps coming on you for uh, week in and week out is a thing that you got to get used to. And then with this extra time of able to be a mental student, uh, I think it will help those guys. Uh, uh, play a lot faster. A lot of these young guys play a lot faster and play a lot quicker. You know what they want to what they want to do. Is there a, is there a leader or two in your room that have stepped up to kind of take control of, of that receiving group? And and I'm curious at a time when the guys can't be on the field, how have some of those leadership roles been been handled at a time when maybe the guys aren't even physically together? Although maybe some of them live close enough where they can train. But how does leadership play into this this unique period for for your guys? You know, it's big. I mean, I think uh, in my room, you know, guys like Chris Conley, uh, DJ Chark, uh, you know, those type of guys, uh, Keelan Cole, those guys are, are are taking the bull by the horn and saying, hey, you know, we need to have some virtual meetings. We need to have virtual meetings and stuff like that. And uh, and maybe, you know, do some script work. Or, you know, if we can't get out together or, you know, see each other and, and, and you know, take let's 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 get into this offense let's 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 be ready to go when it's time for us to go and uh and i i like i'd like that and i think it's probably happening across the league you know with the quarterbacks you know you know all the quarterbacks are probably trying to get guys uh you know focused on on all these virtual meetings you know and all this, you know most guys are in different different cities but you know they they get on the zoom they get on the teams microsoft teams and and do virtual walkthroughs, which is which is I think is a great great idea and a great leadership uh, thing for for the quarterbacks and the guys that are doing it because uh, you know they're they're taking the bull by the horn they 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 want to make sure when football season starts it will be really good football not just not just football and it's catching up to being on a vacation for for a couple of months. 
you know, I, I really like the group of guys that you have in your room. And I remember watching a video um, when you were mic'd up at Jaguars practice and you were kind of telling the guys, look, we need to try and be the best receiving core in the league every day, every practice, every game, every week. And, you know, I think that for young guys, sometimes when they come into the league, maybe they're not thinking that way, that they need to be the best right away. But why is it important to you to sort of ingrain that mindset in your players, young and old, that it's important to try and be the best group in the league every single time you step on the field, whether that's a a 95-degree day in training camp or a 30-degree day in December when you're hoping to make a playoff push? I mean, because, I mean, everybody, you know, to play in this league, you got to be the best. I mean, and I mean, if you, if you settle for average in this league, you will be average or you'll be out of this league. And I said, you have to play at your best each and every day you go out because of the evaluation process that's taking place during, during training camp, during mini camp, uh, the evaluation process that's taken throughout the year. I mean, just because you make it, make the team or, you know, you make the team and, or you don't practice squad and you, you go out there and you think you've made it and not trying to be the best every day you go out there. One, <laughs> they're probably going to be out of a job. Two, you're not, you're not fine tuning your skills. You're not being the best of, 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 uh, what we got five, uh, let's just say you have five guys on the best of what? 40 some guys. Uh, no, Best of what 160 receivers in the league, you got to be one. You got to be the best. I mean, it's 100, probably 150, 160 receivers in the NFL. You want to be the best out of that 150, 161 because you have a job. Two, it means you're being very productive and very successful out on the field because you are one of the best. You're putting in, you're putting in your time and the work day in and day out, week in and week out to be considered one of the best. And I mean, and I tell guys this all the time. You know what? It's a game, but it's also my job. I want to be the best at my job, and uh, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's something about being the best uh, at your job that that makes makes you feel good, makes a lot of people respect you too. Well, one of the reasons I was really excited when the Jaguars were able to set this up for you and I to talk is, you know, anybody who's who's listened to this podcast or heard my other podcasts over the years or read my stories knows that I have a little bit of a soft spot for guys that. Uh, came into the league unheralded or had one opportunity coming off practice squad <laughs> to make their to to make it and and they'd make the most of it and so when I was doing my research getting ready to talk to you I go back and look at the 91 draft when you're coming out of UNLV and you ended up being the 43rd wide receiver taken in that draft 42 guys taken before you and of those 42 not a single one had more receiving yards than you in your career and not a single one had more touchdowns than you did in your career the closest was Herman Moore the former lion who came within one touchdown of you but didn't come close when it came to yards and by the time your career finishes so many years later you're one of 48 guys to have 10,000 receiving yards and at the time it was even less there's been some that have been added since you've retired so how did you do it and, and what was it like at the very beginning being a guy that comes in 12th round number 200 and, or excuse me 326 <laughs> overall what were yeah. you thinking back then well you know one I was a, a very upset that I didn't go higher uh, two I had a chip on my shoulder to show people that I belong and deserve to play in the National Football League. It was nothing that was not telling me that I wasn't 
better than the guys that were drafted before me or just as good as the guys that, that are drafted before me. Uh, so that stuck in my gut for a long time, a real long time, probably my whole career. I, I say a real long time, probably the whole, whole time I was playing. Um, uh, that year, you know, I go go to the risk, and then I drafted by the risk, and thank you, Jesus, for letting me get drafted. I was so upset that I, I got drafted. I was so thankful that I did get drafted. And when I got there, nobody could tell me I wasn't one of the posse or just as good as one of the posse. You know, so that was Art Mark, Gary Clark, Ricky Sanders. You couldn't tell me that I wasn't one of those guys, that I couldn't play up to their standards. I mean, that, that's just the way I thought, and that's the way I practiced each and every day. Um, wanted the best defender to, to cover me. You know, I just wanted to show exactly who I was and, you know, getting adjusted to the game. It wasn't – it was a – I remember this. Practice, minicamp, wasn't the thing that, that – you know, I wasn't worried about the speed of the game or this, that, because I had so much uh, – animosity about being drafted in the 12th round. I was just going to show I was just going out. Wasn't worried about nothing. Just, you know, <laughs> just just going out doing what I had to do. And then I remember the first time I, my first preseason game is actually when I realized that this game was played a lot faster than what, you know, what, it, what, what I was playing in college and what I was playing in the pros at practice. Then I, and from that point on, I really adjusted myself to to understanding how to play this game. I watched, I learned from everybody, and when I got my opportunity, you know, I go to Cleveland uh, the first year. I get put on the practice squad. Oh, I was so upset then, so upset because I felt like I had a really good training camp. I played some guys, and uh, you know, but you know what? You 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 lived. You 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 still on the team. You still can get better. I go out and I made sure every day at practice, every day at practice, I made two, three, four plays a day to show them that I I should be playing. I should be on the active roster. That I was one of the best players, one of the best receivers on the team. I mean, it was just that type of that that type of desire that was in my, in in me and the persistence in me to continue to show people how it was. I mean, it happened that way for, um, you know, I would say two years, I would say, in Cleveland, and the, the last two years I played, in the, the, and it was like sparingly playing third receiver, fourth receiver, and then finally my last year I got a chance to be the starter, uh, and, man, I just, I wasn't letting relinquishing that, 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 that position and I wanted to and when I became a starter I, I wanted to show people exactly who I was that I could that I could handle the load that I could be the guy and it it just stayed in me that chip <laughs> the passion the persistence to be great stayed in me then and then even when I got to Jacksonville I had another chip to to prove that I am a starter I am one of the best in the league. I'm going to show you. I mean, it went on and on. Like I said, probably throughout my whole career, I found a way to get myself motivated to to prove to people that I wanted to one of the, one of the best best wide receivers in the league. And you know, you couldn't tell me I wasn't better than James. You couldn't tell me I wasn't better than Chris Carter. I mean, I'm like, I'm doing exactly what they're doing.
made it some games worse, but I but I was gonna go out and practice just to throw out the greatest. Where do you think that that mindset came from? Did you have a, a sibling or a cousin or or a family member where you constantly had to prove yourself as a little kid? Where does that 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 ability to to harness the chip on your shoulder come from? Do you think? Uh, I'm an only child, and I just uh, I kind of remember um, growing up as uh, uh, in Pop Warner, and I remember my first chance to uh, play Pop Warner, and it was tackle football. It was six years old. And, and I was a, I wasn't a, a a big big kid at six, you know. I was everybody else was kind of a little bit bigger than me, and they were bigger than me. And, and the, I remember the coach said, "You sure you want this?" He told my dad, "I ain't want the same thing, but you sure your son won't want your son to play with these guys?" You know, he, he's a little small guy right now. I don't know if he could uh, <laughs> if he's gonna be able to make it. And I looked at my dad. And I didn't say anything. We got back in the truck. I said, I definitely want to play there. I got something to tell you. And uh, anyway, my dad was like, you sure you want to go over there and play? And I said, yeah, this, this is the top one I want to play. I want, I, I want to play for right now because I got something to prove. That's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And, and it stayed with you your, your whole career. But I'm wondering, at the beginning of your career, you mentioned you go to the Washington in 91. You end up on injured reserve that year. They, they win the Super Bowl. And so you don't get to play in the regular season games that year. And then 92, you mentioned uh, you go to uh, Cleveland. And, and that first year there, you have one catch for eight yards. So you have this big chip on your shoulder from not being drafted as highly as you want. And then your first season, you have an injury. And your second season, you mentioned it's practice squad and you, you play in, in maybe one game late in the year. And even the next two years, you're, you're playing a spotty role. So how did you how did you not get down on yourself or, or avoid any uh, frustrations boiling over and potentially damaging what wound up being an incredible career? Uh, I had a great coach in Cleveland like that just she kept inspiring me, Coach Richard Mann, you know. Coach Mann coach, you know, coached me like I was the guy, like I was one, going to be one of the guys. I mean I I respect that so much because he took the time to put put in his effort to continue to coach me when he could have just said, Well, uh, he K K not gonna you know, he's not gonna He's not gonna pay attention to me. He's just gonna he's gonna be pissed. He's gonna be pissed off. Have a chip on his shoulder because he's not playing. He saw that I, I just wanted to learn. I wanted to continue to be better. He knew I I went out and worked a hundred percent each and every day, and he invested his time in me. And I had to pay the respect back to him to invest my effort every time I went out to practice to prove to management that. I deserve to be clean. I deserve to be catching a lot of balls right now. And uh, you know, he was one of those guys that kept pushing me. And he used to tell me, hey, do not feel, get down on yourself. You can play in this league. So go out here and show them you're on practice squad. You're facing Frank Minifield. You're facing the best guys, Reggie Rowley. You're facing the best guys, the Eric Turners. You're facing them all the time in practice. Show them exactly what's going on, and and he said also you're getting them ready for the receivers that that they're going to face. So I I took that and ran with it. It was, it was my calling card because I was just like I'm going to show these guys exactly what they're going to face on Sunday, and they don't they don't get a little piece of me. 
I'm going to put my type of swag on it. And I wanted to make sure that what I was doing to those guys that I wanted the, the, the guys that were on the team to see that, man, he, he ready. He can play. I better keep, I better keep working or else he's going to take my job. And then, you know, and and then the, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Keenan. And that's the kind of, and that's the kind of determination I had each and every day. It wasn't the fact that I was going to let it, let, let that, that chip off my shoulder just because one obstacle came up in, in front of me. I, how are you just going to stop? Because that obstacle came up in front of you. All right. You got hurt the next year. They put you in practice squad. Is, is, are you going to let that stop you from your dream? No, I wasn't. I was like, okay, I'm I'm a, I'm a hurdle this obstacle. I'm going to go under this obstacle. I'm going to go around this one. Every time something came up, I kept being persistent enough to find a way, find a way to, to go around it, find a way to go over it or under it and, and be able to be successful. I mean, and that's the thing that, that drove me and pushed me the whole time. You know, that 95 season when you finally get your chance to start some games, you have 56 catches for 709 yards and four touchdowns, and, and that was more than the production you'd had in, in the entire rest of your career at that point. Your quarterback, I know there were two guys that kind of played a little bit that year, but the majority of the time was, was Vinny Testaverde. And so what was it about your connection with Vinny, or, or what did you do to kind of cement in his mind that uh, that you were a guy he could count on where – you know, in the past seasons, um, you know, essentially you had played a, a much smaller role. I mean, it was something about it. When Vinny got to Cleveland, me and him just clicked. I mean, I mean, we 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 had a great relationship. Uh, even in training camp, we we built a great relationship. He he knew where I was, um, where I was going to be. A lot of times, and you know, before Vinny became the starter, you know, he was a backup to Bernie uh, Kozar, and we just had a connection and. He could trust me. Knew I was going to be in the right place at the right time. Knew I was smart, uh, you know, and just I—I I mean, it—it it just clicked, you know. And uh, and I loved—I loved playing for Benny. Benny was was a was a great quarterback for us. I mean, and a great person. I mean, it's just was something about about me and Benny that that clicked. I mean, and and I I loved it because when we went out, we were just out having fun. We was going out and just having a lot of fun when we were out there and uh, I mean and it just carried over from being a being doing our doing the practice stuff doing doing all the 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 scout team stuff it it just just kept on blossoming when we became came starters you know that that Cleveland era was was fascinating because there was there was a lot of talent on those teams and they were coached by you know Bill Belichick who obviously now has gone on to become one of the the greatest coaches of all time if not the greatest coach of all time and you know the defensive coordinator there was a guy named Nick Saban who in the college ranks is up there among the best of all time and so you know now that you are a coach yourself do you look back on any of those experiences do you see did you see anything in those guys that that you took away from even as a young player that that you know, eventually they would become two of the better coaches in their respective levels of play? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, you know, Coach Saban demanded a lot from his DDs. I mean, I can remember us, uh, receivers laughing over at some of the DDs like, man, your coach is loud. Man, your coach is always on you guys. And and after we sat back and thought about it, it was like, we laughed about it. It was like, 
man, Coach Saban is still the same demanding person he was when he was in Cleveland coaching uh, Eric Turner, you know, Doug Griffin. Like, we, we just like all those guys are like, Coach Saban is still the same guy. I mean, he, I mean, he demands so much from his guys. He puts so much pressure on his guys, which we understood because Bill put pressure on us to be the greatest. I mean, to be the best every day. It's always a competition. That's one thing I you you respect about Bill. You respect about Coach Saban. You, uh, Coach Belichick demanded you to compete, bring out the best in you every day. He says the way you practice, the way you're going to play. And I used to believe that because Coach Coach Gibbs used to say that all the time. And uh, and when I got to Cleveland, it was just a carryover. And you know, it's just <laughs> Coach. <laughs> Coach Gibbs is a Hall of Famer. Coach Coach Belichick's going to be a Hall. Of, I mean, it's just one of those things that, like, I guess you get from those type of coaches. I mean, those all, it's about how you practice, how you how you how you go about your way of uh, preparing for games, how you what, what type of teams you're going to be. I mean, I I knew Coach Coach Belichick was a, a really really good coach, even though sometimes he he could get on your case, but you know what, he was smart. Uh, if if he believed in you, you you I mean it was you you knew it and it was great. I mean he demanded from you, uh, and he demanded a lot from you. And the guys that could take the demand, he got rid of. He knew guys that could take his demand, and the guys that that couldn't, he he would get rid of. Guys that he did that that knew that they could take it and be, and be the type of player that he wants you to be. He kept you around. That's really interesting. I had never heard anybody dive into, you know, some of the the mental strength that Belichick requires in in the way that you just explained. And the guy that you played for next, Tom Coughlin, is another guy who was, you know, very demanding of his players and and always, you know, expected the most out of them. I know that, you know, maybe stylistically they could be quite different, but in terms of the things that made them successful, were there similarities between, you know, Tom and what he accomplished in Jacksonville and later New York? And and what Bill has done? Are there any similarities between guys who win in that regard? Uh, you got to think about it. They they both came off the same tree. Uh, Coach Parcells, Parcells, uh, he he demanded a lot. I had a lot of friends that played for him, and he demanded from you. He he, he demanded uh, excellence from you, uh, and he respected people that went out and laid it out on the line. And both those coaches. Coach Coughlin and Coach Belichick uh, respected every if when you went out on the line and you laid it out on the line for your team. You gave it, gave it y'all in practice and in the game, you know. And uh, don't don't uh, don't talk to talk, walk the walk, you know. And you gotta you gotta walk it. I mean, if you don't talk what you what you say, you gotta walk what you say, you know. So and I, I believe, you know, Coach Belichick was the same way. Don't give me lip service. Show show me action and. It's just something about coming off that uh, Coach Parcells tree that that those guys took and demanded uh, excellence from you each and every day. And you know, you know, Coach Parcells he was a great coach himself. So I think they 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 saw that they took it and they demanded it from um, from your from their players. I think it's easy to overlook how good 
those Jacksonville teams were at the start of, of their existence in the NFL. They they come into the league as an expansion franchise in 95, and then in 96, 97, 98, and 99, that four-year period, you guys go 45-19, and 19, including 14-2 and two in 99. You make the playoffs in all four of those seasons, and you make two AFC title games, including your very first year there in Jacksonville. So what was it? about the beginning of that run in 96 with Coughlin as the coach, with Kevin Gilbride as the OC, with you and Jimmy Smith as the uh, the two receiving threats, Mark Brunel in the passing game at quarterback. Why did that offense click so well, and, and why did you guys have such a spark from essentially the very beginning of that franchise's existence? Um, you know what? The man from Coach Coughlin uh, came from him and they, and we expected it from each other, you know. We expected greatness from each other. We we held everybody accountable to go out and play. You know, it, it's kind of funny, you know, the demand came so much from Coach Coughlin. Uh, at, at some point, we kind of, we rebelled a little bit in that locker room. We were mad at first about the way practices were going and this, all, this and that, and one day we just had a little, little team meeting in the locker room. We're like, "Hey, man, the only reason, the only way we're gonna get him to let up is us go out and win. Let's start winning ball games and go. You know what that is? Let's do what we're supposed to do. Stop all the uh, grumbling and, and and all that griping about this about that. Let's go out here and get it together. Let's go out and 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 go." and go ahead and execute and do the things that he wants us to do. And let's see what happens. If we should start winning, things should start easing up. You know, um, if we started winning, <laughs> things eased up a little, but not a lot. He demanded more because he saw more and we demanded more out of each other. We, we, I guess we tend to take, we took on his personality. We started to demand each other more and, that was something that that a great coach employs into his uh, team. Take on his 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 mannerisms, his demeanor, his his mindset of uh, getting more out of you. And I think that's what happened in Jacksonville. And we started just to demand more out of each other, um, and we became a, a, a close knit team. And there's nothing we wouldn't do for each other in that locker room, and that was the thing. We kind of was us against the front office or us against the coaches, but it really wasn't us against the coaches. We just was trying to get some of that <laughs> some of that hard work during the week off of us, but it also we also knew it made us better, so we wasn't any more complaining. But we just that kind of gave us a chip. That's I, I guess to say that would kind of get gave us that that gave us a chip. Uh, to go out and and play great on Sundays. I mean, we we knew we had to win. And you make the Pro Bowl that first year, 85 catches, 
1,129 yards and three touchdowns. And Jimmy Smith, um, you know, your, your guy on the opposite side at receiver, 83 catches, 1,244 yards and seven touchdowns. And so we hear a lot about ways in which guys can play off of each other at certain positions. You know, you can talk about an outside linebacker or a D end playing off the defensive tackle in twists and games and things. You can hear about corners and safeties playing off each other because they're on the same side of the field. Was there anything that you and Jimmy could do sometimes on opposite sides of the field to still complement each other and play off each other that contributed to your guys' success? You know what, we we always played off each other. Um, it was funny, we, we had a great relationship and a great competitive relationship. You know, it was kind of like, all right, Jimmy's over there. He's he over there making plays, burning, burning DBs, and, and, you know, scoring touchdowns or making catches. So it's my time. I got to do that. Or vice versa. I would be over there doing something and, and he would be like, oh, he's doing something. So I got to make sure I go do something, you know. And it was just that type of uh, friendly competition. I mean, I, I can remember it. Uh, we were in the locker room one day, and uh, it was a practice. And we had one-on-one. And I, that day, I was really – I was on my game. I was, I was playing, and, and we was <laughs> – one-on-one was, was easy. Nobody was covering me. And – we all of a sudden, Jimmy starts to light it up on the other side, and we sat down in the locker room after practice. He said, "Man, I had to go do something to practice today." Because I asked him, "Say what? What got in you today?" He said, "Man, I had to go go do something to practice. You was over there killing them in one on one. I wasn't gonna be the guy over here just like, oh, what Jimmy at? You know, I was he's like, I had to go go start doing the same thing to the DBs on this side of the field and." Things like that that uh, that made us so good together, and it was it was just a quiet competition that we made each other better. You know, we didn't want to, the other guy to outdo one It never got in the way of our friendship. It never got. It was just a quiet, silent competition that made us great. So every time we stepped out on that field, we looked at each other and was like, "Hey, let's go get it done." You do yours, I do mine. And that was it. I mean, you just made us better. I mean, you know, I, as they say, iron sharp as iron, we, we was, that was, that was us. You know, this, this might sound like a little bit of an odd question, so maybe the answer is simply no, it doesn't make a difference. But is it different to catch passes from a left-handed quarterback, given that there are so few of them in the National Football League? Uh, no. I would tell you this: you, by the time you start to think about all that, that ball is already up on you. If you're a receiver, you're gonna catch the ball. If you're worried about that, then you're worried about the wrong thing. Right. A football is a football. I kind of tell my guys this all the time in my meeting room. Now they can put a machine back there, quarterback. They can put your grandmother back there, quarterback. They can put your sister back there, quarterback. Whoever's playing <laughs> football, you better catch it. That's your job. It doesn't matter if it's coming end over end. Sideways, better catch. Yeah, the reason I ask, of course, is because Mark Brunel was was left-handed, and and you know one of the ways that he was able to count on you is being fearless going over the middle. And somebody who's been in the league as long as you have, and and now around the league as a coach, I'm sure you know that there are guys that don't want to go over the middle. That's not something that every guy is willing to do. So 
um, you know, when, when you would talk to Mark about things you were comfortable with or things you liked, did, did you always make it clear to him that, that you were not the type of guy who was going to be afraid to stick his nose into traffic? Because that's partly what you became known for, your toughness and your willingness to, to take hits over the middle and secure the football while doing it. You know what? I really didn't have to tell him that. He already knew it, just the way I competed all the time. Uh, every ball was mine. I'm open all the time. Every ball was mine. I'm open all the time. Uh, he'd tell you, if he, if he, had, if he was on this call right podcast right now, he's like, well, 87 is always open. He'd call himself <laughs> 7-Eleven. You know, he'd call himself 7-Eleven. Or he'd say, well, on the West Coast, he'd say, if he didn't know, it was A.M.P.M. And he was, you know, in the convenience store, AMP, he was always open. You know, I'm like, that's, that's, how, that's how I thought. You know, I would come to the sideline and say, hey, if he ain't open, I'm open. I'm wide open over here. And he first, he, he, Mark would tell you, at the beginning I was like, he's just telling me so he can throw me the ball. He's like, and then he'd go back and watch the thing. like, yeah, he was open. He was wide, he was wide open, you know. All that, you know, so that's the thing. Like, Mark didn't have to worry about me, you know. He know I always, if I could, I would want the ball as much as I can to to help our team and do the right things to make sure our teams were, you know, our team was winning, you know. I, you know, that's the type of competitive attitude I had. And and that was the type of competitive attitude we had all all the time on that on on, on those teams, you know. Guys just wanted to do whatever they could to help us win. You know, when I was covering the Packers in Green Bay, I had the opportunity to be around Devontae Adams, who's become one of the best route runners in the league, especially with what he can do, you know, within the first two or three steps and his releases off the line of scrimmage. And he used to tell me about, you know, just how much time he put into his releases and how much time he put into studying body language for route running purposes. What were some of the things that you did in your playing day to perfect and improve your route running ability? You know, it's kind of interesting that you say that, I man, because first off, you got to be able to release. And Devontae said the right thing. You got to figure out how to release, you know, and, and, and see body body language from DBs and stuff like that. You know, you always, as a receiver, this is what I always tell uh, my defenders when I was playing. I, if I can put you where I want you so I can release, so I can run my route. If I need to put you outside of me and, and outside leverage, I got to do something to put you out, to get to outside. I got to make you believe something to make you get outside. If I want you inside so I can run an outbreaking route, I got to make you believe if you're head up to outside, I got to get you to the inside. So I got to do something to uh, to make you get inside. I always used to say, I got you on the string. You're, you're my puppet. I control you. That's, that's That was my belief as a receiver, as a route runner. I can I can – I'd be savvy enough to set you up, to put you where I want you to be, and I run my route to be open, you know. And I, I believe that, like, you're on my, like, you're my puppet when you're out there. And, and I, and that's the kind of, that's the kind of mentality that I had. And I had to find a way, and like the one thing he says, you read body language, you study guys, you, you study your route running, you believe the type of route runner you are, and believe in yourself to get to that spot that the quarterback wants you to be, uh, to be open, and and you you put the DB on the on the string, and he's your puppet. You put him where you want, and he'll never be able to cover you. And that's the mindset that I had. And I like what Devontae said. 
you got to be able to release and uh, and read body languages. Yeah, and, and I had a few episodes ago, I was talking to Casey Hayward, who's become you know one of the better corners in the league for the Chargers, and I asked him a question. I said, would it be more difficult for you to face a guy who has unbelievable releases off the line of scrimmage but doesn't have the absolute blazing top end speed or would it be more difficult for you to got to face a guy who doesn't release as well off the line of scrimmage but can run you know low four threes or high four twos or whatever and he said you know sometimes it depends on the situation he said but at the end of the day if you don't have the ability to get a hand on a receiver within the first couple of steps because his release is so good and so strong and so unpredictable that he can just juke you almost like a crossover in basketball he said that's going to be hard because no matter how quick you are as the corner it's hard to catch up if the guy has your hips turned the wrong way it's it's almost impossible and so you know I'm wondering when you look at the league now other than Devonte, you know the name that comes up that I hear sometimes with releases is Keenan Allen are there guys around the league that that you uh you have your own players kind of look at or, or players you like to have them study cut-ups from you know we study we study uh a lot of guys you know I always tell guys you can steal from 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 guys you know and put stuff in your in your toolbox you know I mean steal stuff like steal moves steal releases Still routes, understand what's going on, you know, and uh, and don't be afraid to try it yourself because you may be able to do it better, but you you have to be able to to uh, to be able to look at a guy and understand what he's trying to do and understand what he's not trying to do. You know, I have look at Keenan, I have look at Keenan Allen big time. Uh, you know, I like I like for him to look at Odell. You know, I look at at, at players like Michael Thomas. You know, because I take I tell them to look at these guys from different standpoints, their strengths, uh, look at their weaknesses and, and why they are successful when they when some guys are not a blazer, some guys are blazers but 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 you know can't run routes or can run routes on you know, stuff like that. You gotta you gotta see both sides of the story and see why they're successful and uh, uh you know, and you gotta be able to work on your weaknesses more than you do on your on your strengths. You know, I think a lot of guys always work on their strengths instead of their weaknesses now. I mean, because you know they want to. This is like basketball. I'm a right-handed basketball dribbler. I'm going right. I'm going right instead of working on that left. You know, guys got to work on things that they don't do well and to make them a complete receiver. Um, you know, I just I look at look at uh, uh, Julio. You know, I, and I go back. And I pull up uh, Pierre Garçon stuff, you know. You know, when I'm looking for certain things, I find the guys that do it really well. You know, I, you know, I go back and look at look at Santana Moss, things like that. Uh, you know, I look at Jimmy. I look at uh, Jerry. You know, I look at T.O. Randy. You know, I, I just have guys look at these guys and figure out why they were so successful. Uh, the Steve Smiths of the world, you know. Stuff like that, you know. You look at look, look at guys with releases, you know, and, and stuff like that. You know, I I always tell I I, I get to I just using somebody example. I, I just tell Didi uh, I tell Didi Westbrook all the time. I say you should look at Marvin Harrison. You guys got the same body type. Look at what he does. Look how successful he was, you know, and 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 see what he see why he's so so successful. You have to do that. Uh, I I'll throw many different guys out at these guys. 
That's really interesting. You know, I, I like the way that you can kind of pick a a comparison for one of your players because sometimes, you know, just on my last podcast it was a it was with a former NBA player, Lindsey Hunter, who's now a division one basketball coach. He was saying one of the things I learned when I got into the NBA was that you can see yourself much differently as a player than a coach can see you. And that can be based on the personal you know experience and the way you play the game or it could be based on schematic fits and so I do think it's really important for guys to have like a second set of eyes telling them who they look like or or what they remind somebody of because you know it can be difficult sometimes to get an honest assessment of ourselves we might view ourselves differently than than we actually look you know what I mean right and I you know the best I mean, guys that have played it and seen a, a lot of guys are some of the best guys to come to get those comparisons from, you know, and, and, you know, and, you, and they won't see it until you show them, you know, and you've got to show them, you know, and I, I tell them that all the time and, you know, we'll look at it and they're like, coach, you sure. Right. He, he has this stride, you know, he looks just like such and such. He looks like Keelan Cole or, and stuff like that, or, you know, I mean, Cole, I mean, they'll be like, Cole looks just like this guy running routes or this guy, you know. It, it's a, I, I tell guys it's a great comparison, you know. Everybody just says body type, okay, yeah, he's big, this is who he's like. But, no, you got to look at the whole thing, the way he runs routes, the things that he do well and, and stuff like that. You know, I, I laugh sometimes when I look at, look at comparisons of guys coming out now, you know, in the league that some of the – not to take anything away from the analysts that are doing these uh, comparisons, but I just laugh sometimes. Like sometimes they're so far off, then sometimes they're right on. You know, but you know it's 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 interesting because I get a chance to watch a lot of guys, and then I also played with a lot of guys and saw a lot of guys and 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 see that person in it and show them how, especially if he was a successful person, I was like. Hey, take a look at this this guy right here. You might see yourself in him, and I'm not telling you that's who you are, but you got a lot of comparisons. Uh, he was very successful in this league, and you know what? Look at it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Sometimes, you know. Well, one of the things that I like to do on this podcast is is ask guys who had the opportunity to be around some of the all time greats for what they think made those guys great. I think there's a lot of insight that that people like you can provide about, you know, players who are at the absolute top of their position and I picked out a couple that I'd like to to ask you about. And the first one, I know it's not a position that you played, but you know, there was an offensive tackle in Jacksonville named Tony Baselli who a lot of people think should be in the Hall of Fame. And so for a guy who a lot of times in your position, you you're getting open, you're trying to do everything you can, but some of it also comes down to whether or not those offensive linemen can give your QB enough time in certain situations. And and Tony Baselli was a a first team all pro three straight years, 97, 98, 99. What made him so good along the lines of, of what we've just been talking about with what makes guys great? I think, I mean, I really think that, you know, he, his, his work ethic was unbelievable, man. I mean, people don't realize how, how, what kind of work ethic he was. He had a great competitive uh, spirit in him. His drive, his competitive spirit was unbelievable, you know. He, he hated to lose. You know, you kind of look at some of those great tackles 
the Anthony Munozes and stuff like that, the guys that 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 didn't want that their defender to touch the quarterback. You know, he had that same type of drive, that same type of ability to do those things. And uh, I mean, he was just a freaking freak of nature, you know, for a big guy his size. And then the second guy I'd like to ask you about was, you know, after you have that great run in Jacksonville, both individually and as a team, you go to Tampa Bay and you end up winning a Super Bowl there, you know, being a a primary contributor on that offense. But on the defensive side of the ball in 2002, there was a linebacker named Derek Brooks who wins Defensive Player of the Year. He's got 118 tackles that year, one sack, five interceptions. And what blew me away the most was four defensive touchdowns for one guy that season. So, you know, I'll ask you a little bit more about what it was like to win the Super Bowl in a second, but to be around a guy like Derek Brooks, you know, how can one guy influence a defense as much as he did? Because uh, Bo was a, I call him Bo, that's his nickname for us. Uh, He was a, um, he was a a great leader, great professional, uh, was all about being the best, wanted everybody around him to be the best. Uh, some way, somehow, he figured out how to touch guys on that side of the ball each and every day. I mean, well, something as small as, you know, you know just, 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 hey, I got your breakfast. Uh, come on, I, I brought it into the locker room. I got you, you know. And, you know, guys would respect stuff like that. Uh, they really figured out that he loved to play the game, uh, he's just—he was just a general on the field. He knew—he knew the offense better than the offensive players knew the offense. You know, you know. I used to laugh all the time. I used to ask them, "How you know they were running ISO at you?" I I watched it so many times. I—I I just saw the—I saw the, the sweat coming down the fullback's nose, and he's looking at me. He's nervous, and I'm like, <laughs> "He said I saw it." You know, it's just like, man, he was just—he was just so in depth on 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 the game man and I, I i mean he was probably one of the one of the best teammates i've ever been i've ever played with man just by i mean far as being a leader knowing the game and you know just a person himself and being a, a great person you know it's hard enough for for one guy to make you know an all pro team in the nfl because that means they're the single best player or one of the two best players at their position and i look at that tampa bay defense when you went there in 2002 and they had three guys named first team all pro simeon rice warren sapp Derek brooks and then two more guys named second team all pro in ronde barber and john lynch not to mention additional pro bowlers on offense brad johnson Mike Allstott. So this team had talent all over the field. Did you know when you went to Tampa that year that that team was was good enough to win a Super Bowl? Basically, from the second you got there, I did. I, I want to. I'm being very honest. Um, I knew something was special about this team. Uh, he brought me in on a visit from uh, Kansas City. I had just flew in from Kansas City from taking a visit to Kansas City, and we had dinner and it wasn't, di- I'm thinking I'm having dinner with John and all the rest of the coaches. I have dinner with the whole entire team, all the defensive players, wow. Brad, Keyshawn, it was all the defensive players. We sitting at dinner having one heck of a time. And I knew right then I was signing in Tampa. One, I knew, I knew those guys before, but it wasn't like I was, like I was trying to get in a really good situation, and 
when I landed in Tampa, I, I understood it because Derek, Derek and John told me, "Hey, man, we need you here. Uh, we need you to be the leader on that on, on that side of the ball. Help Brad out." I just came from being in Jacksonville, being a leader, and understanding that, understanding how close we were in '99. And I looked at these guys, and I was like, "Man, that defense is is special. These guys understand." how to play football, how to win. I just need the help on the offensive side of the ball. And that's exactly what they were preaching to me. And that was one of the bigger decisions that I, that, 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 that was one of the things that helped me make my decision. And I knew right then, just going into training camp, going into mini camp, that we had a special bond. It was, everybody knew what we were there for. This was our time. I mean, this was this was our time. We knew it. Like, okay, it's now or never. And everybody put their heads down, put their egos aside, and said, hey, let's go get this championship. Let's go get this ring, and, and we're going to make everything all good. And so that season culminates with the ring, like you mentioned, in a, in a really lopsided Super Bowl, 48-21 over the Raiders. That defense that we talked about at the beginning picks off Rich Gannon five times and returns three of them for touchdowns. And on the offensive side, you yourself catch two touchdowns in a Super Bowl. Uh, for a guy who, who came from where you did, being a 12th round pick and, and needing three or four years before you finally got your chance to, to catch not one touchdown but two in a Super Bowl, uh, was that the ultimate for you? Yeah, it was. But as a true competitor, you wanted more. <laughs> Fair enough. I was happy, you know. I was happily won. Uh, wanted more. I wanted, but I I did my part. You know, as a true competitor, I wanted more. But it was it was unbelievable. You know, I, I go back and when they play the the Super Bowl and I laugh. But it was just like it was just work for me. It's what I was supposed to do. Like some people see it as as well. That's unbelievable. But that was my job. You know, and and, I, and if I didn't do it, I let my teammates down. You know, and, and it could have been a difference of us not winning the Super Bowl. I, I just see it as it was my job to do. That's what I was. That was my job. You know, and it was a it was a special job because you got a chance to do it in the Super Bowl, and you got a chance to win it. I mean, but at the at the time, it was my job to do that. You know, after that Super Bowl winning season in Tampa, you stick around in Florida one more year and have another 1,000-yard season in 2003. But then you go on and, and you join the Chargers. And this is where I want to ask you about the, the third and final guy, you know, that I kind of put in that upper echelon. And, and during that 2006 season when you were in San Diego, um, you know, you had the opportunity to be a teammate and on the field with a guy named Ladanian Tomlinson, who that season ran for 1,815 yards and 28 touchdowns, also caught uh, 508 yards worth of passes. He wins the MVP, the Offensive Player of the Year, and to prove that you know he's not just a football player, he wins the Walter Payton Man of the Year award that season. Um, that has been labeled one of the more special offensive seasons in recent memory. To be around the guy that did that and be on that team and contribute, um, what was that like to see what Ladanian did that year? It was special just being a part of it, man. Uh, uh, LT was um, was a special special person, man. I, I tell people this all the time. Uh, I got there uh, in San Diego. I came in uh, on a trade and got there in the middle of the week and and just I'm on a Tuesday and 
listening to him not say anything but go out and just be the person that he he was i was shocked that he was such a quiet you know and, and he only said uh, when he spoke people listened you know and uh that year he really didn't didn't say much the first year when i got there and then the year that he he takes off and wins the mvp uh you know all the 14 2 we i mean I, I kind of told him, I said, man, we need you to speak up a little bit more, you know, because you are the guy. And he used to tell me all the time, Ken, I'm not that guy. I just said, T, I just need you to just say something every now and then, you know, and we got your back. And it was that, it was, it was just amazing to watch him, watch him grow into the, the guy that he was, the leader that he was. Uh, the more vocal leader that he was, and to watch him play at the level that he played at was unbelievable. I mean, I call him the quietest superstar I've ever been with. And uh, probably besides Barry Sanders, you know, I had never played with Barry, but I just heard he was really quiet. Sure. He was really quiet, uh, uh, very respectful for, to everybody. Uh, just watching him do it, being on the field with him, uh, just being out there playing and doing it when we we knew it was obtainable, man, we went, we bust our butts to do it to get it done, you know, for him because he was such a great person. Besides just a great player, I mean, he was just a great person, and I mean to watch him do it, it was just it was a smile, man. I mean, you going to block the safeties, he comes off your butt, and we used to say, shoot, boy, if we block this safety. Then, uh, then three and a half seconds, LT must didn't get through the line of scrimmage because we knew it. we just got on the safety line. He's out of And then to watch him catch the ball and be a, such a, a receiver that that which was great. I mean, he helped us out as receivers outside. It opened up the game so much for us. Man, it was it was an unbelievable year, you know. And I, I you know, I got to give Coach uh, uh, Coach Schottenheimer a lot of credit, man. He he believed in. And LT, he believed in us as a group, his leadership group. He believed in us. He put the pressure on us to make sure our locker room was great. Uh, asked T, you know, to to speak up a little bit more himself, and it was great, man. I mean, we we had a good time. At that point in your career, as you were starting to, you know, wind things down or get to a point where maybe you could say, you know, I can, I can see the end or the finish line for me. Did you already know that you wanted to go into coaching eventually? Uh, I did. I mean, I really didn't see the finish line then. I mean, I like when you start seeing the finish line, that means you're ready to get out of it, and I wasn't ready to get out of it at all. I was super competitive still. Yep. They called me pop. Even though they called me pops, that that motivated me even more. Put these numbers up and show you guys, lead you guys to the promise land, and stuff like that. That's, as I got closer to the end, and when I went back to Washington, uh, I was playing. Uh, I was a vet in the room. I was still, I was coaching, not really coaching, but I was just telling guys what to expect, how to how to do this, and I and. When I got to the end, I was like, uh, I don't know if I really want to do this because, you know, watching Coach Man, watching some of my other receiver coaches, you know, hours they work, they do the things that they do, um, what as a at the at the time wasn't enticing, right? And then you know, I got away from football, 
you know, when I retired, uh, 08, I just kind of got away from it and I missed it. You know, I thought I was going to just say, okay, I'm good. I'm going to go play golf and relax. It was in my life for 17 years, plus college and high school. And I've been in my life my whole time. So, um, you know, I got I got a call from Coach Coughlin. And he told me, "Hey, come, why don't you come up and do this minority internship for us with the Giants and see how you like how you like uh, coaching instead of playing golf so much?" So, <laughs> uh, my golf game suffered after that because I I actually and I I knew I was gonna get the bug. I I actually really knew I was gonna get it uh, get the coaching bug and because I love the game. I love what the game had had given me, and it was time for me to give back to the game. You know, it gave me a lot, you know, and I and I think I, I and the way I, I wanted to thank the game was to give back to it and, and just show guys that like, how to play the game, how that mindset of how to play this game. You know, it's your job, but it is a game, but it, it's your job to be the best. It's your job to go out there and be who you're supposed to be, who we expect you to be, you know, and uh, and don't sell yourself short of not not wanting to be the best you know and I, I i felt like i had to have to have to talk to guys these young guys about that I mean, don't don't just go through the motions and and so when you get your your first opportunity to to be a position coach it's with washington the team that drafted you in 2010 um you're the wide receivers coach on that staff that has been you know widely discussed in recent years because you had mike shanahan super bowl winning coach as the head coach then Kyle Shanahan, now the head coach of the 49ers, Sean McVay, now the head coach of the Rams, and Matt LaFleur, now the head coach of the Packers. And so, you know, for the the, um, the quality of offensive minds in that room, including yourself, did were you guys aware that, that it was a special bunch, even if maybe the wins and losses on the field didn't go your way? Could you tell that there was a lot of potential, coaching potential there? There was a lot of coaching potential, great coaching potential. I think... Uh... We probably didn't realize it because we were so young. We grew up young. We were we were young, you know, and that, and um, you know, and it was it was it was a good group of guys. I mean, guys that that respected each other, guys that that put the time in, you know. And you know, you got to give Coach Shanahan, uh, 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 Coach Mike Shanahan, a lot of credit for putting that young talent around him. Uh, believing in believing in guys, believing in us uh, uh, to go out and get the job done. I mean, uh, I mean he, uh, you know, he always had his his own rival uh, with him, uh, Coach Turner, Coach Bobby Turner, and and he was a big inspiration to us because he would, you know, if Coach Shanahan wasn't there, Coach uh, Coach Turner would get us in order and and keep us on online you know because we were still young and and learning and you know coach turner would would say he give us a great nugget every day and 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 it kept us kept us focused kept us pushing you know the mindset of those guys you know being around those guys now and and the the meetings we had about designing different plays were were unbelievable you just kind of laugh now because when you see them on 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 film where other teams are running to some of the same stuff that that you design, yeah. it makes you laugh. I mean, it it it's it, it's uh it was fun, you know. It, it, I mean, my time, my my first two years, it was tough, but it was fun. I mean, when I mean fun, it was fun being around those guys. 
In between uh, your current job now with Jacksonville and that experience in Washington, you dipped into the college ranks for a little bit for two years at Maryland. What did you take away from that experience, and, and what made you ultimately decide that the NFL was, was more in line with where you wanted to coach? You know, it was fun. I mean, I, I actually enjoyed college. It was fun because you got some young men, you know, that <laughs> that didn't have any conviction at the time, you know. They were trying to find they was trying to find their, their way, you know, you know, they're coming out of high school, you know, uh, some guys didn't have any, a father figure, some did. Uh, you just had to, to lead guys, guide guys, be hard on guys, you know, <laughs> discipline guys, just to get their mindset to where they needed to be as a young man, not just a football player, but as a young man. Right. And, you know, and I, I, I tell that to them all the time. I mean, what you're expecting uh, in this world, you gotta you gotta be ready for it. I mean, you're expecting a lot, uh, and we expect a lot from you here as a football player. But the world, your family expects a lot of you as a man. So, don't sell yourself short. Be the best man. Be be the greatest. Uh, be great. Be the, the best man. The greatest man you can be for your family. You know, and, and that'll that'll work out. If you're gonna be the greatest for your family, your work ethic, and you're gonna be the greatest for for Maryland football. I mean, I think those guys understood that. That's how I, that's how I coached them. I coached them hard because I loved them hard. You know, I loved them hard. Stephon, all those guys, Dion Long, Marcus Leaks, uh, the DJ Moore's, You know, all those guys. You know, I loved them hard, man. I I, I did a lot. For everybody the same way all the time you know but you can have your your rules and guidelines that they that everybody has to go by but it's it's, it's they're like they're like my kids so i one can't miss one way we can't uh, just like in my house my, my four my four kids you know a uh, few girls and a boy they all look the same but they know the rules that you put down in some ways you gotta how you how you have to emphasize the rules to to one or two in different ways you know and that, that's what college was for me i mean it was fun i mean uh you know that that doesn't scare me to go back to college because uh, i think coaching is coaching and leader wherever you want to be you know and getting guys to to play for you getting guys to understand you and getting guys to to uh, well bringing the best out of guys so that was fun has it has it been unique for you to uh, be living and coaching back in a place where you established yourself as one of the best players in in franchise history? I mean, you guys have such a transient business where you could wind up working anywhere in the country, and and a lot of times the opportunities that present themselves to you are out of your control. So that your career kind of brought you back to Jacksonville has has that been special for you and your family? Uh, it, was, it was it was very special. It was special even just coaching Washington again because. You know, it was, I was there for Super Bowl year. I was there for the last year when, when Coach Gibbs went. We went to the playoffs and, and stuff like when last year Coach Gibbs went to the playoffs. Uh, I knew how DC was when it when DC was winning, and at the time it wasn't winning. And then to come back to Jacksonville, uh, it's kind of the same thing. I'm like, hey man, when we went to the AFC Championship game in 2017, 
I told you guys how this city is. I mean, they love football. We out in droves to, to support. I mean, I also said, you know, when you don't win, this city understands good football and bad football. I'm talking about baseball. And I, t- I, I have to tell them, I said, we had never had that many type of seasons. We didn't have that many type of seasons in Jacksonville when I was there. We had a lot of winning seasons there. That's what I knew about this city, that they respect good football and stuff like that. You know, you know, I could say the uh, the twenty, I mean the two thousand two thousand team and two thousand one team. We were close, but we was always competitive. So it was never. We still had a full stadium and to come there uh, the first year and we go to the championship game and then come back and things go different. And I just tell my guys, he's like, oh, this is, they're like Jacksonville is not with it. I say they're with it. You just got to be out, go out and put the best football that we have out on the field and show them that we care about playing. I say it's a blue collar, blue collar city that loves people that go out and put in, roll up their sleeves and go to work. They love it's a work. I mean, they everybody in Jacksonville has worked for what they what they've owned. I mean, that's that's just a community, and and you respect that. So, so I'll get you out of here on this then along those lines. What can this group of receivers that you have show the city of Jacksonville, you know, assuming the season comes together and everything, but, you know, with DJ and LaVisca Chenault, the rookie, and Chris Conley and Dee, Dee Westbrook and these guys, what can they show Jacksonville this year if they continue to progress? Uh, a lot of hard work, a lot of toughness, <laughs> a lot of guys that have on the line every week for you and, uh, and bring and make plays for this team to help it win. You know they're going to do their part. They're not going to go out and and not play. They're not going to do that because their coach is not going to let them. Coach Coach Barone won't let them. But I, especially the person that's in the room that's leading them, is not going to let them not play hard. You know, and uh, they're going to understand uh, the meaning of hard work and determination and the ability to be great. Uh, every day they are out there on the field. Every time you walk out on the grass, you got to be great, and they're gonna they're gonna know that, and the fans are gonna know it too because they're gonna they're gonna show it uh, through their play. Awesome, awesome. Well, Keenan, thank you so much for taking some time. I know this was maybe a few minutes longer than I was supposed to go, but I enjoyed hearing your stories. So hopefully it was uh, a little bit enjoyable for you, and and glad to hear everything is going well in Jacksonville, and and looking forward to watching the team this fall. So thank you, Keenan. Thank you. It was. It was a great. Uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. It was great. So there you have it. A conversation with Jaguars wide receiver coach Keenan McCardell. I hope you guys really enjoyed that. I learned a lot from him about both the mental and physical side of being a good, standout, superb wide receiver in the National Football League. So that was a lot of fun for me as well as you know a very educational podcast. And and that's why I like doing this honestly because. In addition to you know providing a source of entertainment for you guys, or what I hope is a source of entertainment for you guys, I also learn a lot, and and that you know knowledge gaining process only informs more of what I do as a reporter. And so the more knowledge you have, the more educated you are with the questions that you ask, and the more um, the more knowledge you have going into an interview and learning about a subject. And so it's all beneficial, and I, I hope that you guys are 
are really liking uh, the podcast because, as I mentioned before, I don't get paid for doing this. Um, in fact, you know, the podcast actually loses money because it costs, you know, to to put the thing through SoundCloud and the equipment costs money and all that kind of stuff. But I enjoy doing it uh, despite the the long hours of work it takes to do the research and the editing and the mixing and all that stuff. It's fun for me. I hope you guys enjoy it as well. And again, all episodes of this podcast are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. So if you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a review, leave a rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and let us know what you're thinking, because I read all of them, I see all the feedback and all of the comments, and I do appreciate everyone who has left kind words thus far. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon. Thank you.